You should feel guilty about your sin. I'm going, like, no, I shouldn't. You sit there and go, you're enslaved by your sin. I'll go, ah, that's true. I actually can't break what I'm doing right at the moment. There's a connection there that you can take them back and sit there and go, the gospel isn't just the removal of your guilt. It's your liberation from, I do not do what I want to do. But that which I do not want to do, that is what I do. It's Romans 7. And so we just we need to understand the felt needs of our culture, not because we're going to sit there and go, that's what we're going to change the gospel into that, but to see that the gospel answers what is underlying those felt needs. But there's another aspect of this also, which is trying to work out what are our defeater beliefs. Now, what do I mean by defeater beliefs? Defeater beliefs are beliefs which make Christianity fundamentally implausible. Now, I'll try and define this for you in a moment, what I mean by plausibility. But a defeated belief is essentially one of those beliefs that once you believe that, it becomes very, very hard to even consider the reality of God. So in the past, this was a kind of version of scientism or science, which is basically like... If modern science is true, God can't be. And that kind of became a belief lodged in the culture. And then it's kind of like, I'm not even going to consider what you've got to say because science. Now, you'd sit there and go, well, have you met some scientists who actually believe in Jesus and also are scientists? And have you actually looked at the evidence? And can you see that that doesn't actually mean... But they're not even going to go there. It's just going to be kind of like, no God, science. Like, it, it just means Christianity is implausible. You believe this, and therefore Christianity can't get an even a hearing. And so there's a difference between establishing the gospel's credibility and the gospel's plausibility. So apologists, when I use the word apologist, that's always a dangerous word because it sounds like the church is just running around apologizing for things. That's not what it means. An apologist is someone who defends the faith intellectually. And this is from a guy called John Stackhouse. He says, Most apologetics throughout Christian history have been directed at the issue of credibility. Is it true? Nowadays, however, we are faced with the prior question, the question of plausibility. Might it be true? Is Christian argument something that I should seriously entertain even for a moment? Without dealing with this prior question of plausibility, apologetics cannot proceed to the traditional task of offering good reasons to believe. Let me give you an example. In my class, I'm an ancient historian by training. That's what I have my PhD in. My students who are in front of me are performing artists. They are not ancient historians. I can offer them a powerful, powerful historical apologetic for why it is pretty reasonably historically demonstrable that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. You can give an excellent case for it using historical criteria. Very, very powerful argument. I can like lay it all, like leave nothing on the field, like just put it down and just intellectual tour de force. Like nobody could possibly resist this argument and people would honestly look back at me and sit there and go, what do I care? You hate gay people. That's a defeat of people. You hate gay people. Does that make sense? I'm not even going to consider what you're saying. I'm not even going to listen to you because of this other thing. And it's just going to wipe the floor. I'm just not 
going to give you a hearing. And so we can sit there and have all of our proofs for the existence of God and historical evidence for the Bible and all this kind of lined up, and it's just kind of like until we address something of that prior belief, Christianity is implausible because you cannot follow a God who treats people who are same-sex attracted the way that Christians do. You just cannot follow him. It's, it's implausible. Does that make sense? That's what plausibility is about. And that's why sometimes we have all the arguments for God, but nobody's listening. Because there's a prior set of beliefs, there's a prior something that you've got to deal with. Now let me show you how this works out. I want to show you the opening chapters, sorry, not the opening chapters, the table of contents of a series of books of apologetics across the decades. So in the 1960s, one of the favourite books of apologetics was a guy, guy called Paul Little, called Know Why You Believe. Okay, now his chapters in his book were, oops, is Christianity rational? Is there a God? Is Christ God? Did Christ rise from the dead? Is the Bible God's word? You can see what he's focusing on. All these standard topics about basic arguments. People sitting there going, you'd have to be dumb to be a Christian. And him going, no, you don't have to be dumb. There's really smart reasons for why to believe that. That's 1968. 2008, a New York pastor called Tim Keller writes a book that is somewhat similar. His are about, there can't be just one true religion. How could a good God allow suffering? Christianity is a straitjacket, starting to get a little different. The church is responsible for so much injustice. How can a loving God send people to hell? Science has disproved Christianity. Now we're back on safe territory. And you can't take the Bible literally. And so you can see even Keller's starting to change. He's having to deal with not only issues of is it true, but are they good? Now, ten years later, or nine years later, Keller brings out another book because he realises reason for God isn't doing everything that it could called Making Sense of God. For the sceptical, and these are the chapters, 2016, sorry, a meaning that suffering can't take from you, a satisfaction that is not based on circumstances, why can't I be free to live as I see fit as long as I don't harm anyone, the problem of the self, an identity that doesn't crush you or exclude, exclude others, a hope that can face anything. Can you see the changes starting to happen? Because the apologetic question in our culture right now is not, is it true? First of all, it's, are you good? Are you good? And then I'll consider whether it's true. Because proclaiming it's true will do a certain amount of things, but then they'll just simply say, but you are evil. And so you've got to actually address those kinds of needs. So they're the defeater beliefs that are coming in play. So contextualization is not, and this is from Keller, as is often argued, giving people what they want to hear. Rather, it's giving people the Bible's answers, which they may not at all want to hear, to questions about life that people in their particular time and place are asking in language and forms they can comprehend and through appeals and arguments with force they can feel even if they reject them. It's taking the questions of the culture and saying the gospel answers all of these powerfully, brilliantly, perfectly. But you've got to take time to listen to them. So to kind of finish up before we do a little bit of role play, what might it mean to speak Christ's truth with winsome persuasion? I borrow that term from a guy called Tim Muehlhoff. Winsome persuasion. 
That is, how do we persuade people of the truth and point people to Christ in a way that's winsome? Where they actually walk away and go, I really like how they spoke to me and I really found their... They actually walk away saying they're going, I want to believe that's true. Even if they don't, I want to believe that's true. So here's a few things that I feel like I'm learning in my journey right at this moment. First, earn the right to be heard. Forget about playing the entitlement card. So Christians are good at playing the entitlement card. The government shouldn't take SRE off us. We should have nativity presentations in shopping centres. We should have a seat on Q&A every week. Okay, Christians are good at playing the entitlement card. Christians have got to learn to actually sit there and go, do we have the right to be heard? Do we have something to say into that space? Don't just sit there and go, we demand our rights with SRE. Develop a great SRE program. So be ready to speak. The comment of Mark Scott, the head of, former head of the ABC, now the head of the Department of Education, and a Christian man, He was once asked, why don't you have more Christians on Q&A? And Mark Scott's response to that person was, I'll put Christians on when they have something to contribute to the discussion. Because he goes, I've had them on in the past and they didn't know what to say when we asked them about all the various issues. He goes, if all they know is basically how to say, you know, Jesus is Lord and put your faith in him and be saved, you can't go on Q&A. They're not just going to give you a platform for that. You've got to have something to say. Earn the right to be heard. And then you'll get the right to be heard as you proclaim the gospel. So aim at persuasion, not position. The church doesn't need to evangelise the world from position. We don't need an office. We don't need money and power. We need to persuade others. The church has never needed power. And we shouldn't seek it. That's not what Jesus called us to. We should seek to persuade. So earn the right to be heard and be ready to speak. The encouragement of 1 Peter 3.15 is always be prepared to give an answer, the reason for the hope that you have. And so when you offer your opinion as a Christian, it does not guarantee that you know what you're talking about. I sometimes like to say to people, conversion does not confer competence. Which is to say, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. So be humble and don't just simply sit there and go, well, my Christian perspective on this is this. And pastors need to learn this. When I'm a preacher, I'm awesome at pontificating from the pulpit about things I know nothing about. Okay, and so we've got to learn a little bit of humility and have be ready to speak something that's helpful. Thoughtful Christianity is incredibly powerful. Probably half of my witness to my students is just not being dumb. Now, that might sound weird, but what I'm saying is I actually demonstrate to them so what they'll do sometimes is I'll sit there and they'll go, oh, Christians, they so annoy me. They're so dumb. And I'll sit there and go, do you think I'm dumb? Well, you're different. I go, well, I know lots of people like me, lots of thoughtful Christians. And the way that I demonstrate I'm not dumb is not by having all the answers, but by being able to listen to them and sit there and go, that's a really good idea, but how about you think about this as well or this as well and have a generous conversation rather than me trying to blurt out the first answer that comes into my mind and then realising, oh, sorry, I'm wrong, can I just retract that statement from 20 minutes ago because I'm an idiot, which is often what we do. So there's a need to be ready to speak, and manner is just as important as content. Um, We're truth people. 
Evangelicals are truth people. We know the truth about Jesus. And that can sometimes feed an arrogance in the way that we want to talk to the world where we sometimes think, I'm preaching the true gospel. If they're offended, it's their fault. And we don't actually think about the fact, have you thought about the fact that even though you're preaching the truth, you are also thoroughly obnoxious? You really are. Now, that's not necessarily aimed at anyone in particular. I don't know you guys, but I certainly have met a lot of people who know a lot and are awful human beings. Sometimes sending people to theological college can be a difficult experience. Not because theological colleges are bad, but because you get a bit of truth in people and all of a sudden they become warriors. And it takes a while to get that obnoxiousness out of you. I certainly know that at 21 I knew everything. I I knew more then than I know now, let me tell you. And I would happily tell everybody how smart I was. Okay, and so when our tone is horrible, when our language is belligerent, when our hearts are bitter... Okay, in recent major debates that have racked our culture, like the same-sex marriage debate, it mattered not only what we said, but how we said it. And so let me try and help us just think through how to communicate in our culture. First thing I want to stress is that hospitality is the soil for true conversation. There's one thing that God has been speaking to me about so much over the last two years. It's this need for the virtue of hospitality in the Christian life. And it's so undervalued in my life. And I haven't been talked to about it in the way that I've been talked to about other virtues. But hospitality is like a core virtue throughout the scriptures. Think of the ministry of Jesus. What's he known for? Who he ate with? What's the, what's, what's the qualifications for a leader in the Christian church? It's not just that they have got sound doctrine. It's also that they are hospitable. Okay, so hospitality is the soil for true conversation. It's better to have a conversation over a meal than in a classroom. And your opinions are meant to be an act of hospitality. You being right is about you giving your opinion as an act of love to your neighbour, not as an opportunity to demonstrate how awesome you are. Because let's be honest, sometimes being right is about me feeling good about myself and me belonging to a tribe. That's why I like being right. Like, I don't like being wrong. I've got to tell you this right now. I am sinfully not liking being wrong. Like, people challenge me and I sit there and go, I'm just going to defend this to win. When I've actually got to sit there and go, why am I defending this so hard? Is this an act of love towards this person? Do I want them to know the truth? Because then it's 1 Corinthians 13. You're just a clanging (laughs) symbol. Not doing anything if you have not love. Your opinions are to be given for the sake of, I love the truth and I love you. Which means, of course, take the log out of your own eye. Be honest to admit where you and others have got things wrong. Be honest to admit that the church has got things wrong. That's what Christians are going to be doing tomorrow when they're talking about the verdict on Pell. Acknowledge your willingness to learn more about an issue or more about their life and to be schooled by your dialogue partner. Do you actually know what it's like to experience same-sex attraction? If you don't, don't be hasty. Do you actually know what it's like to be an immigrant? If so, great. If you don't, don't be hasty. Before you have any conversation, do you genuinely believe you could learn something from this person? that you don't yet know? Or are you just there to tell them everything you know? 
Third, considering does not equate to condoning. This is one of the things that I really find hard, particularly as a college lecturer, with people with essays. People with essays often feel like the point of an essay is to find the people in the readings that they agree with, to only use their viewpoint and to never use anybody else's viewpoint because it's like it's terrifying to actually consider someone else's viewpoint because then it might imply that you're condoning it. See, they're going, that actually shows that you're a mature thinker, that you can actually listen to someone else's point of view, still reject it, but happily listen to it. You can consider someone's point of view from your own without condoning it. For some people, listening to someone is affirmation of their viewpoint. I'm going to let you talk about your experience, even though it's completely different to mine. No, no, no. Let them talk. Let them say their thing. Let them say what they truly think about Jesus, God, the church. Let them do it. And don't jump down their throat. Let them speak. And then have an answer that is wise and responds to who they are and what they've told you, rather than the desire to destroy, defeat, and disarm at every moment. Um, Here's the deal. If, if you haven't read their basic text, so if I'm working with a Nepalese person, if I'm working with a Hindu, and I haven't read their sacred texts, I'm going to be far less effective than if I actually listen to what they believe and read their sacred texts. Not because I desire to read their sacred texts to meet God, but because I want them to meet Jesus, and I've got to come to where they are in order that they'll come back with me to meet Jesus. It's about listening. I'm not affirming them. I'm just going to engage with them. Here's my rule. I can't argue against you until I've shown you that I understand you. I can't argue against you until I've shown that I understand you. So the way I do that is this. Let me see if I've understood you correctly. Say what I think they've said, and until they nod, I don't go on. Because if I can't repeat back to them their point in a way that satisfactorily summarises for them, then I haven't heard them. It's a good tip for a marriage, too. Fourth, one that I don't always follow. Um, engage with the best version of your opposing viewpoint. Okay? If you're dealing with someone from another religion, don't take the worst example of that religion. Take the best. Do you really want to be judged by the worst examples of Christianity? Do you really want people to evaluate Jesus on the basis of what the worst Christians have done? or what Jesus has done. Engage with the best version of your opposing viewpoint. And finally, Jesus does not need a bully or a salesman. Sorry about the small text. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Okay, we often think the warrior is the person who's going to win everyone to Jesus. But actually, I think in our culture, it's the person who's patient and journeys with people, sometimes on a long journey. You can be patient and humble, and our hope is not in slickness. So that's just a few things about our culture and how the church might respond. Now what I want us to finish with is a few role plays. And so what I want to get is, is kind of um, uh, maybe uh, four groups Four groups, so kind of, uh, I don't know, there's, there's probably about seven or eight in each. See if you can try and self-organise into a, into a group. I'm going to give you four options. So, so like kind of group one over here, these kind of couple of rows here. 
I'm going to give you an, a, a role play, which is Imran is your next-door neighbour, a Sunni Muslim who often wears traditional Islamic clothing. And you pass chats with Imran, he's expressed some hostility towards the way politicians and the media portray Islam. You want to share the gospel with Imran, but you're also a little bit afraid. One day Imran is telling you about his anger over the wars against Islam that the West has fought. Sorry, I don't know why I put a question mark there. What would you do to move Imran towards the good news about Jesus? That's your context. How would you engage him to move him towards Jesus? Group two, the couple of rows at the back. Sally, as a friend at work, is in the process of transitioning into a man. You've always had a good relationship. In her past, she was very hurt by church experience where she was shunned because of her conflicted feelings about her gender. She's come to you and asked you to call her Simon and to be an ally in the process of change. What would you do to move Sally, bracket Simon, towards the good news about Jesus? Well, I'm hoping none of these are actually hypothetical. They're actually probably quite real for a lot of people in the world today. The back group, the back couple of rows on this side. George is a middle-aged man who has started attending a congregation. He's presently married, but he's open about the fact that he's in an adulterous relationship with another woman. He confesses that he thinks Jesus was about acceptance and inclusion and that strict sexual morality is from a bygone age. How would you move George towards the good news about Jesus? And then the final one, you guys at the front. You live in a very conservative area of Sydney, which has voted liberal for nearly every election. That's my electorate. Uh, but the area is rapidly changing with younger people moving in. These younger people seem interested in checking out the church but ask loudly and often where the church stands on issues such as climate change, domestic violence and the care for the asylum seeker. They seem upset at the right-wing focus of your congregation. That's not an accusation against you guys, but just assume that for the moment and argue with you that the church should change. How would you move these young adults towards the good news about Jesus? You've got to just keep that roughly. You don't need massive details. You can even flick back, but just quickly form a new groups. Chuck out a few suggestions. Okay. If we want to come back together, and we'll just finish up. So, the, 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 the point of this little exercise is not that you will have all figured out how to serve Imran or Sally or uh, the young adults or uh, George uh, in any particular way. It, it, is, it is merely to sit there and try and begin that process of conversation that you'll have over and over and over again. What did you notice about the kinds of things that you were trying to say? You can give examples and things like that. How did you try and approach the issue? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And be happy to acknowledge you're not me and I'm not you, but I'm interested in you. So the one thing I don't ever do with my students is try and be an artist. So my, my community has basically been artists, but I don't try and fake it. All I do is I sit there and go, I'm interested in you. I want to know who you are. And they actually like me more for not faking it. But sitting there and going, you, you want to know me as me, and that's, that's enough to start with. So, yeah, building the relationships really important to build that connection. And hospitality, so crucial. Which, by the way, in the New Testament, nearly always is literally love of stranger. It's making the strange one come home at your table. 
you know, so, so don't, you know, the dinner party in common Western culture is where you bring the familiar to the table, but hospitality is about bringing the stranger to the table. Yes? Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, you are halfway there, but they're harder sometimes. model something to them yeah and how can you take them to Jesus so sometimes I try to say to my students uh, I can't tell you what to do here's my question can God tell you what to do and sometimes I say no and I'll go that's I'm glad you can be that honest but ultimately what I want them to get them to see is this is not about me walking into your life trying to tell you what to do I want to try and get you to Jesus and you have your encounter with him through his word to sit there and go, this is what he actually says about your life. How can I get out of the way? How can I be the helpful brother or sister taking you to Jesus? Because so I don't want them to change because I told them to change. I want them to change because Jesus told them to change. <laughs> That's what it means. Jesus is Lord, not me. Other things you notice. You can latch on. Yep. Mm. And you can hear him out on it. You can sit there and go, from your perspective, I can see how that must feel and, and be. And, and I'm not just going to come to you as I you know, happen to be on this side of the politics and stuff like that, because justice matters. Justice matters. And that's, yeah, that's... Yeah. yeah. And the gospel is all about justice. <laughs> it's about the God who justifies justly, um, but takes that justice upon himself as well, which is what none of, none, no, nobody tends to do that in diplomacy. So, anything else that people noticed? Hope that, that what you started to think about was this person who's in front of you. This person, and I want to know who they are, how they see the world, to know that Jesus loves them, and Jesus wants them to repent and to submit to his lordship, but but how do I get them to understand that this is good news 
for their particular expression of life. Because if we think about our own stories of encountering the good news, Jesus met us at a peculiar point of need. And we know that. And, 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 and yes, some of us might have grown up within the faith, but we've still had experiences where, for example, the love of Christ met us in our shame or our loneliness, or, 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 the, or the glory of God met us in, in, in helping us understand that there's something far larger than us that's driving our existence. We know that that's... And we know that we don't get everything when we accept the... In the sense that we know we don't understand everything about the implications of the gospel when we first come to Christ. It's about one or two or three specific things. And then as you come to church, you see the benefits of the gospel unfolded, like Ephesians 1, where it's just like this explosive sentence of joy. Kind of it's adoption, and it's this, and it's that, and it's this. And you, I didn't realise how good it was. But when we're bringing people to Christ and when we're reaching out... But my encouragement to you is this is not a time for us to be uh, silent. This is not a time for us to be afraid, but it is a time for us to listen and to speak wisely to the people who are around us and to reflect the love of Christ as we preach the love of Christ and to be aware that for all that I've said about the secular world, and Stu was just talking to me about this just at the end, uh, just at the start, sorry. At the end of Q&A last night, I'm told that all of the panellists reflected briefly on their, four out of the five reflected briefly on their faltering, stumbling faith in God. And this is not what you expected at the end of that Q&A. And those people were all in different spaces and places, and yet they still kind of, um, the line that uh, a British author called Julian Barnes once used is, we kind of assume that everyone doesn't believe in God and that they're kind of aggressively against him. And he has this character in one of his books that says, I don't believe in God, but I sure miss him. Which is this notion of a God-haunted a God haunted world where we're not quite, and they can't quite put it into feelings and, and they, can't, they don't have it as a God-shaped hole exactly, but, but they kind of sit there and go, they hear you and they watch you and they encounter you and they're kind of like, Oh, now I see what I might have been looking for. As we, as we listen to their story, they get to know our story. And then they start to sit there and go, I'd kind of like my story to be more like your story. Tell me about more about this Jesus. So I pray God's blessing upon you for all of your work and witness in, in Concord and beyond. Uh, thank you for listening and journeying with me this evening. And uh, may God bring many people uh, to himself through you. And uh, may you continue to flourish and grow as a church. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Mark. just a little token of Thank you. That's very lovely. Uh, for you coming to share with us and I think really helping us. And uh, this is awesome. We, we struggle with this every day. And uh, we're up against it. And so I think we need one another uh, within this church and also uh, the blessing of others uh, who are battling and struggling uh, in this area as well. So thanks so much for your encouragement and, and your thoughtfulness. Uh, and also, uh, Mark lives in Kellyville, so he's got a decent drive home. So thanks for... Uh, um, please pass mm. on your thanks to your family as well, because you're away from them. Got no a decent drive home. Uh, 
Uh, not something I've written. Probably the best little, it's not so little, but it's, it, it's a bigger book, but it's written by a guy who's a brilliant communicator. It's a book by a guy called Sam Chan, called Evangelism in a Skeptical World. If you've never met Sam, he's a 52-year-old doctor, evangelist, like he's worked as a minister and a doctor. Um, he's hilarious. Uh, he's brilliant. The other book I've heard you recommend is the, uh, uh, the one I'm kind of persuading. Uh, Winsome Persuasion yeah. Yeah. by Tim Mulehoff and Richard Langer, which is more just about, it's written by communications professors. And so it's much more about just how do you talk in a culture that talks past each other? How do you not just end up in Facebook arguments? We might send some, some of the material out. Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to put, put together, together a resource list. Send yeah. like that out. Um, thanks so much. Mark. I'm going to um, close just by praying. Um, also, uh, I think it's good to keep thinking about these things. Um, but also, I think one of the dangers is we think we need to find out more before we can engage mm. in evangelism. And that's a real danger. I mean, I'm the kind of person who just needs to know everything about everything. And so the danger is we actually never do it. Um, so last year, at the end of last year, um, we introduced you to this resource. Uh, we've got some extra copies of the first chapter. What it is, is a booklet Mark Gilbert introduced it for us. It goes through the Gospel of John uh, in a way where you can just sit with a friend um, and perhaps this won't be from your first conversation with a friend or a colleague, someone that you know, but as uh, topics around Christian faith come up, it'd be good to have in mind this resource and getting your friend and you together around a resource like this. This is one of the best going. Um, there are sample copies up the back. So I just want to remind you of that, uh, that... Um, a lot of the principles and things that we've talked about tonight are really helpful, but we want to move mm. towards engaging people with the word. And uh, I think, as we said last time, um, it's important to under- And I was saying, and, and uh, the Apostle Paul understands the culture for which he preached the gospel in, say, in Athens. But as we open up the scriptures, the scriptures provide a culture. They set a scene. They set a framework. And so... Um, as we engage in evangelism where people don't have a lot of Christian framework, I think it's never more important that evangelism occurs through the Word of God because the Word of God is giving people the framework they don't have in order to understand the essence of the Gospel. So I'll just remind you of that uh, resource. I'm going to pray and then we can go home or have a cuppa or whatever. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you uh, thanking you for this night. And we want to pray about what we've heard and the culture that we've talked about that we seek to engage in. We ask, Father, that in these changing times, times of rapid change, times of, in fact, darkness that is tangible both to you and us, we ask that you'd be able to help us speak with thoughtfulness, graciousness, courage as followers of you. Father, you know what we're like. We're prone so often to doubt and fear and discouragement and disillusionment. So we ask that you would please help us. We long to be faithful for you. And so help us never lose a passion for the incredible hope that we have through your son. Help us to love your word and ground ourselves so thoroughly in this truth that we might be 
ready to answer uh, when a question is asked. And Father, we ask that we might be a community of genuine love, first to one another here as a church, but secondly to those around us who are lost without a knowledge of your Son. We thank you for Mark. We pray for him, particularly as he teaches. We ask him that you would give him a sense of your spirit in every opportunity in the classroom. We ask that you would bless him and continue to bless him with wisdom and clarity and humility and protection from the evil one as he serves you. We ask, Father, for all tonight that you would renew and refresh us in our zeal for your word, for your gospel and for the lost. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for the blessings that we have in your son, the bond of faith that we have here in this church to share. And we ask, Father, that we go home, that we would live lives this week and beyond in service of you and in knowledge of your son. And in his name we pray. Amen.